Hi, welcome to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. I'm Diane Hullett, and I'm delighted today to have a special guest here today named Joy Redstone. And Joy is going to talk to us about what can be a very complicated uh, subject, but I think also a critically important subject, which is suicide. I heard about Joy because Joy runs a suicide survivor support group, and that really caught my eye because I think there's a lot out there about suicide prevention, and I became really interested in and what happens after. Um, so welcome, Joy. Thank you so much. Um, I'm here because I run the Suicide Survivor Support Group, but that's through my job at um, Naropa Community Counseling. I've worked as the clinical director there for six years. Um, I've done a variety of things over my 27 year career as a social worker, but primarily they have been things that touch on intensity. Um, I've worked in prison mental health, ran a day shelter for many years, um, and worked a lot with people struggling with addiction. But this personal offering, um, the Suicide Survivor Support group, it comes out of an experience eight years ago um, of losing my husband to suicide and um, observing that it is a very hard thing for people to talk about. So after I healed for a few years, um, I decided that I wanted to offer a group. Um, the the needs for support are really great. And it's often really tricky for friends and family members to support suicide survivors. There are different things about language and there are emotional experiences that are really different. So that's the reason for the group. And that's the reason I'm here today. Fantastic. I, I, I think it's so powerful because I, I, again, I just feel that we're all touched by suicide, whether it's something you read about in the paper or hear about, or a young person or an older person, and you kind of go, huh. So there can be those suicides that are at a distance, and then there can be the ones that are much closer in. And I think they're two different experiences, but both have grief and intensity. I, I really like that you use that word intensity. Tell us, let's start in with this language piece, because I think that one's really interesting. And and, you know, the term committed suicide has always felt jarring to me. And yet that is the common phrase. But what 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 can you say about language? Um, that language in, um, in this field is not considered. Wonderful, um, committed, uh, it comes out of um, kind of old laws where suicide was illegal. So the word committed is related to committing a crime and um, suicide survivors and people that themselves have struggled with suicidal impulses. They really find that term difficult um, because it's a personal crisis uh, that is profoundly painful, um, but it's not, um, th that, that language committed, like really brings this sort of antiquated sense of a crime. So, uh, the preferred language at this point are things like, uh, died by suicide or taking one's life. Um, those are considered more appropriate. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I also think there's, there's this difficulty of people often immediately want to know, well, what happened? How did it happen? 
how did the person die? And I, I always think, well, is that ours to know or is that ours to share? How do you how do you answer that kind of like right in the thick of it? Because it's almost the first question that's asked, right? Yeah. I have really strong feelings about that. And every single suicide survivor I've ever known, and there have been so many, because I've been running that group for years now. That's a difficult question. And okay, strong opinion here. That question appears to me to be more about the needs of the person who's asking it than the need of the person that's answering it. It is not okay in my eyes to kind of hijack someone who's the suicide survivor with asking them to go through what the painful details of the most horrible experience of their life. And generally I feel like that's the need of the person who's asking the question to feel safe, to feel protected, to feel like that's not going to happen to me or people that I love. And so I think it's a, a very, very insensitive question. Um, And I just talked to a survivor who was at the Emerge 5K and uh, it was the day after the memorial service for their daughter. And at the memorial service, it was discussed that that's a very painful question and please don't ask it. And the very next day, someone came up in public in the middle of this large event and asked how their daughter died. Yeah. Yeah. And I was so happy that the person just walked away from that conversation. You know, our, our uh, impulse is to be polite and answer a question. That's kind of like normal social conventional discussion. So right. take, some, take some courage to have the boundary of like, I'm not going to delve into my darkest trauma to make you feel safer. But anyway, that's a pretty strong opinion. So I think it's great. I, I really appreciate the strong opinion because I think it's just so interesting. And it's probably sometimes not the person who's the closest in person who's asked it, but the next circle out, right? Yes, that's, yes, that's, totally. and, that, and that's sort of interesting to navigate too. And define this term suicide survivor. Like, what do you mean by that? Like, you know, part of my mind goes, was that someone who attempted suicide and survived it? But that's not what you mean by it. What I mean are the people that are left behind when a person um, takes their life. And I mean, I have read different statistics and it is anywhere from like each person that completes a suicide has six people that are profoundly affected. But I've also seen statistics that say 22 people. I mean, we're, we're social beings, we're herd animals. We, no matter how lonely and isolated the person that dies may have been, there are people that love them always. Always. And and those people are changed. I mean, when you lose someone you love in this way, it is a very difficult experience. Very, very. And you, you, I think about how, again, these these layers, like it, it can be very different if it's someone that you knew of the, the child of a friend that you knew a little bit growing up and now they've graduated college and, and they die by suicide. You're impacted by that, even though it's several layers out. And it feels to me, do you, do you agree with this? It feels like um, there is still this sort of veil of shame around it. Um, is oh, yeah. it possible to change that? Is it desirable to change that? 
well, it's extremely desirable to change it because the fact that it's so stigmatized and shameful really keeps people from asking for help, uh, for help. And really most people that are contemplating suicide are ambivalent. Um, there are reasons that they want to die and there are reasons they want to live. Um, and so if they, if the stigma and shame were lifted to a certain degree so that people could talk about it when they're having these thoughts, then there would be a chance um, that they could be reached. Um, I mean, often when I'm, I've done a lot of crisis work, uh, worked in ERs a lot, which is typically people that are suicidal or um, very often when I'm talking to people, I'm just saying, can you just wait till tomorrow or next week to make that decision? I mean, you know, it's a, it's a final answer to uh, temporary situations. Um, things right. do change no matter how horrible and despairing and alone and awful you feel. It is remarkable how things look different the next morning. So very often I'm talking with people like just, if you want to choose this, that you can choose this, but do you think maybe you could just hang out for a couple more days and check out what other things might happen? Um, so to circle back, it is imperative to reduce the stigma and shame about this. The more we use the word, the more we talk about it, the more this becomes a, um, uh, understood that this is a, also a normal experience. I mean, the other thing I tell people in crisis work is, Almost everybody has this thought or feeling at some point. I mean, the fortunate people have it at a moment, you know, a bad breakup or a huge disappointment, like the, a fleeting thought crosses their mind. Some people struggle with it for weeks or months or years, but it's a very, very common, I think it might be strong to say universal. I don't really know that. Uh, but a common, uh, sure. common thought and a not so common uh, actual action. Yeah, yeah, but um, one that is really, really growing. And that's the other reason we need to reduce the stigma and shame. Um, I mean, there is a mental health crisis in our country um, and it is very much affecting our young people. I mean, last year, my kids lost five friends to suicide in wow. Boulder. Wow. That's that. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that when we were growing up? No, that's can't. Yeah. Wow. And that's, it's, it's high among young people, but high among twenties and thirties also. Right. I mean, yeah. and I'm, I feel like I'm also hearing more about older people. I mean, there's definitely a sense of um, how do I have some control over my end? Yes. Statistically, Older, single, white men struggling with addiction are the most likely group, um, but it is a rising ca cause of death um, for teenagers. It's, it's right, uh, I can't remember, sort of neck and neck with accidental death um, yeah. for teenagers. This is extraordinarily high. Yeah. yeah. 
So, so this, so this sense of kind of um, pervasive, we don't want to talk about it. It's shameful. How, how do you, how do we begin to change that just simply by having conversations, you know, with peers, with teachers, I'm like at a loss of words. What's your sense? Actually, the way uh, the schools are starting to um, really bring in more mental health services and they have that, uh, I think it's called safe to tell um, kind of hotline where anybody, any kid that's worried about another kid um, can anonymously call and say, you know, there's reason to be concerned about this kid. There's, there's some definitely some innovative and um, helpful things that BVSD is, is doing. Yeah, our local um, school district. That's great to hear. Yeah, but honestly, my message is talking about it, using the word. Um, that is the simplest thing that all of us can do. We we're talking some then about prevention. Let's talk. Let's jump into this aftermath thing. So. A suicide happens in your community, whether it's very close into you or a couple steps removed. What what happens in the aftermath for people, for suicide survivors, as you say? Okay. Typically, people are in um, profound shock. It is in the therapy field, there's um, what's considered sort of typical bereavement and then complex bereavement. Right. And typical bereavement is like, you know, you lose someone in your life who maybe is older, they were sick, you sort of knew that, you know, their time was coming, you had a chance to say goodbye, you know, you talked about the things you loved about them, you expressed your regrets, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, like I'm basically like losing a parent, basically. Like you couldn't get clean, kind of typical, you know, it's coming. It's very difficult, but it's straightforward. Right. And really you get a chance to um, have those conversations. So what happens for suicide survivors is it's a horrible shock. They feel incredibly guilty. What could I have done or said differently? Any little conflict, um, you know, looms large. If only I hadn't fought with him about taking out the trash last week. Is it my fault? Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have been snarky about the trash, right? Because the question that is looming is why? And that is the question that tortures people left behind. Why, why, why? And even any, you know, people sometimes leave notes, sometimes they don't. But even if they, do leave a note, there's never an answer to that question why that is satisfying for the heart of the person left behind, you know, because essentially it is like, and I'm sorry for getting a little tearful. My, my, actually my anniversary uh, of my loss was yesterday. So I'm finding the tears a little close to the surface. Huge joy. It's huge. I appreciate it. But I mean, there's no reason There's no answer to the question why that will ever, ever heal the heart of a suicide survivor because, you know, the question is, how could you leave me? I love you so much. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, and the basic answer is the pain was so intense that even though I love you, mom, dad, sister, brother, friend, boyfriend, 
girlfriend, cousin, whatever, still like when you love someone, even though you rationally know that they must have been in horrible pain to take this action, you just want them to be here with you. And it is such an insoluble, difficult, painful, that why is, I cannot even tell you how rough it is. And then in the recovery process, I mean, every birthday, Mother's Day, Father's Day, every holiday, every, you know, anniversary, as you said, anniversaries, graduations, like, you know, your, your husband or wife committed suicide. And then 10 years later, you're at the wedding of your children. And, you know, you just long for that person to be there to, to see the good parts, the beautiful celebratory parts of life. So those things stay painful for a long time. Um, the things that people say to suicide survivors are intensely dumb sometimes, yeah. you know, like, and that keeps the wounds alive, you know, the, how did it happen? And it was God's plan. Like for God's sake, Never tell someone who had a suicide loss that it was God's plan. I mean, they may be polite to you, but inwardly they're seething if you say that, because that is like, that is still on your part, trying to make sense of it, to make sense for something that is beyond making sense. And it's sort of, but it, it's not, it lands really poorly for the person that has the loss because like, well, how could God want me to lose this person that was so special to me? Like, please know God's plan. Right. Right. And, and I think there's this whole category of, of kind of insensitive things that are more about the person asking the question, how, what can we do to support without offering questions that are about ourselves, you know? Right. Right. Help saying things like, I'll listen to any stories that you want to tell. Okay. Cause that gives the choice to the person. They may actually want to tell you what happened. You know, sometimes you need to tell that story about what happened, but given the choice and that lets the person regulate themselves into like the depth that they want to go to and the stories they want to tell a lot of time in the suicide survivor support group, we tell stories that are not the most horrible, sad, tragic stories. Like what was the person's favorite song and what did they like to do? And what are some like, you know, we use the names of the people that we lost. Like finding the connection. And then, and yeah. then that's what people can do who are supporting those people is find that connection and yeah. let, it, let it be real that the person was uh, you know, was present and existed in all these different facets besides the suicide. It seems yeah. like suicide becomes like then the thing that you think about with that person. And so how do we associate all the incredible memories with the person beyond that one moment? Well, yes. I usually say no one wants to be completely defined by the moment they died and how they died. They were a full person. I mean, very often I have parents, um, I mean, cause it is re- like, it all hurts, but my Lord, you know, the level of responsibility that 
parents who lose someone feel is quite intense. And so telling stories about what their kid was like when they were young and the activities they like to do, you know, were they a ballet dancer? Were they in choir? You know, like what was their life? It's like, what was their life? Not what was their death? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Like very often, if you go to a funeral or a service for someone who did not die by suicide, we are talking about like, this person was a volunteer. This person loved to play golf. This person loved dogs or horses or whatever. You know, there's some sense of the person as a full person, not just, we wouldn't be like all obsessed, like tell me every detail of the heart attack that killed that person. Right. We would be talking about who, who the full spectrum of who a person is. Right. And so there's something about coming to, so, so if I'm the friend of someone who is a suicide survivor, what I can best do is be present for them with whatever they need to share. Right. Know that it's a lot of it is none of my business unless the person wants to share with me. So it's this funny balance, right? Of like, yeah. I'm I'm really I'm I'm available to be talked with and to, and I'm not going to ask a bunch of intrusive questions that somehow guide the conversation. It seems like it should be very much up to the person who's right in the thick of it. Yeah. Um, but we lose track. We lose. And not taking it personally, if you know your friend, your best friend who lost their kid to suicide, can't come to your kid's graduation party. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or, That's party. or you know, that this, um, what was the word you use? Complex grief? No, complex, yes, complex bereavement. Complex bereavement has tentacles that really go out a long ways and are going to continue to impact in, in similar, but different ways as less complex bereavement. Yes. Yes. And waves of grief. That's the other thing. I mean, it takes a long, long, it takes years usually. Um, often in the suicide survivor support group, I see people saying around the two or three year mark, I'm, I'm changed, but I'm starting to get my head above water. I'm starting, the, the waves are not of grief are not as intense. They're not as devastating. Um, there's still like holidays and birthdays and anniversaries. Woo! Those are very tough. And again, something you can do is extend extra at those times for sure. But I think that's really important for friends and family who want to support to hear. Like, I think the first year is so difficult, all those things, but even the second year, if you can like mark your, mark a little note to yourself, yeah. this is the day you should just reach out via text or, you know, some simple, I mean, text, listen to me, I'm so modern, uh, but you know, it could be text, email, phone call, whatever, or take the person to coffee or lunch, but like how to sort of say, I get that this day is hard for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, don't expect someone to be the same person. It really changes you, you know, like not all in negative ways. Like um, there's a lot of heart opening that happens with this too, but very likely the person that you care about as your friend or family member that has lost someone they love to suicide, they will be different. And having space for that um, is really, really important. like we, there are all kinds of 
life altering events that might happen for someone, but we don't, and we don't expect the person to just like carry on. Right. Right. And this is one of the biggest, this is, I think sudden, sudden death from any kind of accident and suicide is one of the biggest. And I think that's really powerful that you're underscoring that just the person has changed, or if it happens to you, you have changed and you do not have to go back to some previous thing. It's, it's um, like to, to make a big metaphor, it's like the pandemic has changed everyone and we're yeah. simply not going back to the normal that was. And so take that on a very um, much smaller scale and individual scale. It's just, a, it's a sea change. It's just absolutely dramatic. I think it's also probably so important to reach out and find others who can understand that. I remember, I know someone who's, whose child was murdered and this parent said to me that the only place they could find real uh, understanding in that first year was at a bereavement group for people who'd lost someone to murder because it was just a different aspect than anything else. And in that room, in that support group, this person felt completely got. So yeah. I think about that. I think about your suicide um, survivor support group, wherever you live. I think these are easy to find, hopefully easy to find. Or I'm sure there are groups online as well, but finding people who can absolutely get it, they get the language, they get the emotion, and you don't have to explain yourself. Even sometimes a best friend cannot understand it in the way a new acquaintance who's had the same experience can. Yeah, it's very isolating. Because of the stigma and shame, it is so incredibly isolating. And just even sweet kind friends and neighbors, they don't know what to say. So unfortunately, often when people don't know what to say, they avoid you. Yes. So yes. That's so well often. Uh, a lot of people fall away. You know, I was sort of astounded. I, I lost a significant amount of friendships and I gained a significant amount of friendships. It was talk about that sea change, right? Like, that was, I was a little stunned sometimes, like people that I was very close to who, who they just could not find the words and they really did avoid. Um, so groups like this, they literally just help you feel less alone. That, that is one of the biggest things is to not feel alone. Yeah. Big takeaway. So finding people who you can connect with having boundaries when people ask questions you don't want to answer, knowing that this goes on, that you've completely changed and that this will go on for some time and finding support in the grief. Because I, again, I think this is both, it's both common and singular. Like I think a lot of people have been touched by suicide and when it happens in your life in some direct way, it's a singular experience. Yeah. One of the things that I think is really important is the emotions that happen with this are very powerful. You know, I know in your work, you know about grief. So one of the ways I explain grief to people is it will come in waves and it takes a lot of forms. It can feel very physical. It can feel like having the flu. It can be emotional. You know, it can be days or weeks of crying. Um, It it can be being angry, um, but that one of the ways grief is different than depression is depression is very, you know, it might slowly increase or decrease over time, but you're generally, when you're depressed, you're kind of like, 
like depressed. Like kind of flat and in it. Yeah. Yeah. But grief, um, you can have a normal day or a normal week or a normal month or a normal year, and you can feel like pretty okay. And then a wave of grief can be triggered and you feel like you're right back at the beginning, but the waves pass. Like if you look at them like waves and understand that it's, it's not this ongoing experience like depression and you don't need to panic if you're having a wave of grief. Like you have a lot of evidence generally when you've had a number of waves of grief, like this is temporary. I'm not going to be stuck. Right. But trusting it, like trusting it and going with it and trusting you won't drown in that. Yes. It is a way that's knocked you to your knees for the moment. You know, at Naropa, I've learned a lot of things. And one of the things they say is what you resist persists. Sometimes if you let the grief wave sort of happen and pass through and you don't spend all this energy pushing it away, denying it, like it can pass through without as much damage and it can move a little bit more quickly if you don't resist it so deeply, but it's very averaged. It's very tempting to resist it maybe is the best way to put it because it feels terrible and who wants to be stuck in this profound trough of grief, you know? So people are like stiff upper lip. I'm just going to carry on. I'm just going to go to work today, even though I was up with nightmares all last night and I've been crying for three hours, but by God, I'm just going to like soldier on dudes. And like, it's better to kind of surrender to the power of the grief, be with that experience to the extent that you can let it pass through. Um, easier said than done. Okay. I'm giving you like the ideal here, but these are hard things to do. These are hard things to do. Well, thank you so much, Joy. I just feel like there's so much in this in terms of everything from the language we can use to how we can be with this when it impacts our own life and how we can be with others. I just appreciate your wisdom and this idea that what you resist persists, I think is a good, a good kind of a tagline. So thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. You've been listening to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. You can find out more about the work I do at bestlifebestdeath.com, and you can sign up there for my free monthly newsletter. I've been speaking today with Joy Redstone, who's on the faculty of Naropa University. You can find out more about her at naropa, N-A-R-O-P-A dot E-D-U. Thanks so much for joining me. Mm-hmm.